Welcome to the UCM. We're your tour guides, Zan Peters and Joe Semino. And we're going to be taking you through our humble little museum's collection. The exhibits may or may not be real, but the stories sure are. Enjoy your visit today at the Uncanny County Museum. I had the weirdest flight of my life. Oh, really? Yeah, I flew back to Boston and, you know, it started off normal enough. The guy next to me was a little interesting. He was Hmm. at first seemed really into whatever movie, but like I, you know, it's late in the day. I put my headphones on and I'm just going to, you know, kind of zone out. But then really early as the plane is taking off, they say over the intercom, is anyone on the plane a doctor? Uh, Oh, no. Yeah, that's bad. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Uh, I can't really see, but up towards the front of the plane, you know, suddenly people start walking up the aisles and start going up there. I asked the person next to me if she can see what's going on, the person in the aisle seat. She says someone's lying on the floor. They come back to us and plug in like those like really thick, like quarter inch cables into a plug right above my seat. Uh, I don't know what for. (laughs) Okay. Oh, no. And uh, they were feeding them up to the front. All of this is happening for, throughout most of the flight. It's, it was only like a three-hour flight. Right. Um, all this while, the person next to me is watching, like, I don't know what movie it was. I think I recognized Humphrey Bogart, but okay. is laughing, like, <gasps> belly laughing. Oh, my God. At the movie the whole time, just totally captivated by some, like, old comedy from, like, the 50s. Oh, Wow that yeah this is real uh this is like a um a renaissance <laughs> painting so to speak yeah, right now i'm getting a very yeah. i'm getting a very florida vibe um mm-hmm. and i'm probably gonna regret saying this if something horrible happens to said person that's on the ground so <laughs> but continue i'm getting this really cinematic image in my head right yeah now. yeah it's very it's very norman rockwell i think yeah But, you know, then the flight goes on, um, and I think the person was okay. You know, when we landed, they said over the intercom, hey, if you guys could not get up, we're going to have paramedics come on the plane um, first before everybody deplanes. And, you know, then, you know, then once that person was off and I saw them later, they were in a wheelchair, but um, breathing. Okay. Uh, so nothing bad happened necessarily on the flight, I guess. I don't know what happened to that person. Hmm. But other than that, I think everybody uh, survived the flight. Well, uh, I guess that's yeah. a win in terms of air mm-hmm. air travel, where the the there's a clear good and bad in many cases. <laughs> uh, I just can't. I uh, that makes me very uncomfortable. Because I would never mm-hmm. want to be in a situation where I was so captivated by a movie, I was just like 
belly laughing at everything and they're like hey ah sir sir there's actually a medical emergency happening can you please keep it down what what's that like you know you're just so like why spoil why spoil that guy's good time (laughs) i I just don't want to be rude i don't want to tell him you know he looks like he's having a lot of fun uh i couldn't i don't know man that's that's middle seats can't do it Mm -hmm. always an aisle guy (laughs) <laughs> for this exact, really I'm a, yes. I'm a window i'm a window person see i don't it's all getting on an airplane is a strategy for me much like my entire life so like when i get on a flight i'm like okay like can i get the aisle seat because i think about like if it's a two-hour flight i'm gonna have to use the bathroom i hate asking mm. people to get up because i'm always an inconvenience and i don't want to be so i would mm. rather very much be the person who is asked to move because i don't i don't mind i'm not gonna sleep anyway because i can't so it's one of those situations. <laughs> so I'm like, okay, well, at least I'm on the aisle. I'm in control. I can then get up and move. Um, so that's my strategy for it. Although you do sacrifice the window. And I do like looking out at the clouds and mm-hmm. disassociating from whatever's going on. Yes. But, yes. Oh, I, think, I think that's the best you can hope for on a flight. Uh, I mean, true. you know, when when I wasn't, you know, trying to rubberneck whatever was happening at the front of the plane, you mm. know, I was also kind of reflecting on my trip down to Florida. Yeah. Um, Allison and I kind of watched like three Westerns in a row. So I was really, Ooh. you know, contemplating the Western as a genre, especially in Excellent. terms of our conversation that we had a couple weeks ago. Right, right. Um, exactly. Oh, man. Did you look yeah. at those backgrounds? Did you scope those backgrounds out? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's always <laughs> it's always funny when like, you know. In the case of one of them, they're very, you know, they're supposed to be in Wyoming, but they're more than likely, you know, in California somewhere. Yeah. My goal, my yeah. goal, Zan, is to, is whenever there's like a specific genre like this or something that I like yeah. hammer in a point too much, is that you will think of me like on your shoulder being like, hey, that background's probably <laughs> not real. <laughs> That's really my goal. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Jesus. Uh, one, oh, wow. What a. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but anyways, the <laughs> Joe, there, there's a there's a devil Joe, but there's also an angel Joe on the yeah, other side. Like Krunk from the Emperor's New Groove. <laughs> I don't know why it's me, though. I guess it should be you by the basis of existential. It doesn't matter. What Westerns did you watch? I was like, you, you are, you're, you're slow. The more we talk, you slowly are the voice inside my head, I guess. Um, I mean, I don't know yeah. if you're. I don't know if you're uh, the the voice of reason mm. or not, but you are in my head. Um, <laughs> but anyways, we watched The Cowboys, the uh, 1972 John Wayne film. Nice. Uh, Quigley Down Under. Uh, okay, that's new. Starring Tom Selleck and Slow West, the uh, A24 film. Have you seen or heard any of these? Well, I've heard of Slow West. I haven't gotten around mm-hmm. to watching it, but it looks very good, and I do want to see it. Um, mm-hmm. I've heard of The Cowboys. I've never seen it, um, uh-huh. but I've heard of it. I have never yes. heard of Quigley Down Under. <laughs> <laughs> Quigley Down Under is, I think it was it was definitely the the outlier of them. The like more, uh, I think in one sense, like trying to kind of be an Indiana Jones type of thing mm, where there's okay. like this one super capable guy who's right. like, you know, uh, he's, he's a cowboy from America who's been hired by, um, a landowner in Australia who's looking for the best shot in the world. 
Um, he gets there, demonstrates, you know, with by crazy odds that he can shoot stuff from really far away. And then it's revealed to him that he's going to be hunting aborigines. Ooh, and oh. yeah, he says he says no to this and is like very, you know, uh, you know, very noble, says he's not going to do this. Uh, and, you know, then basically it becomes a, the, the rest of the movie is just basically a, kind of a John Wick type of thing where oh. he's just you know slowly whittling away at um alan rickman's men because alan rickman's the bad guy but <laughs> oh my god <laughs> mr quigley <laughs> turn to page 394 god it's so good how do you do that <laughs> really channeling them in this the aboriginal savage that's less cool yeah um I do very much picture Alan, like Snape specifically, with a cowboy hat mm-hmm. on. Is that like accurate? Or well, is he more of like a Hans Gruber in this situation? I have to say, well, first of all, he was kind of more dressed like Han Solo than Hans Gruber. Oh, interesting. Yeah, knee high leather boots, black Whoa. vest, black cowboy hat. Ooh. Actually, yeah, I mean, Alan Rickman looks good in black. You know, he, that is he would true. take that, he would take that to uh, forward to Snape, I think. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, you know, he does, you know, he he, he, he makes a great bad guy, you know? That's true, he's, he does. He, he's darn entertaining. Because, you know, the rest of the thing is like Tom Selleck is just very noble, very capable, you know? Right. Type of cowboy, just uh, knows what he's doing and stuff. It's like a little... It's a, you know, there's parts of it that don't age great. It's, yeah. there's definitely acknowledgement of, you know, the, uh, um, the British in Australia trying to exterminate the Aborigines. Like that is pretty front and center. Gotcha. Gotcha. You know, there's, there's certain ways they depict it that you wouldn't do now. It's not anything too cringy. Just a couple of moments, I think. Okay. You know? Yeah, where it's like a, sure. it's a little like we look at it now and we kind of eye roll like they're right. going for they're going for something like dances with wolves i think but it's a little less successful it's a little more it unfortunately comes off as a little more goofy oh gotcha okay yeah mm-hmm. yeah and you know there's not ever any point where like they learn to speak the language of the aborigines that like rescue them when they're dropped in the middle of the outback you know right yeah yeah um and but you know otherwise uh you know type of the you know uh, that you would have seen at at that era the Mm -hmm. the late 80s early 90s um look back at uh the 1800s as you know a time of you know the eradication of indigenous peoples like right that is and that's the thing that I am increasingly kind of fascinated by with a lot of Westerns in that sense is how they look at the racial politics of America and, you know, other kind of frontier countries like that mm. through through the different race uh, relations of that time. I mean, Slow West, you know, came out much more recently than you know either of those movies right and is you know the most um you know in one sense a more gritty movie and Mm -hmm. also has you know an even maybe the most explicit 
you know, demonstration of what, uh, of, of what the, you know, eradication of Native Americans looked like, uh, and, you know, just the, the, the nature of the American West. Um, but it's, they're, they're all sort of were interesting in how they subvert the idea of the Western. Um, hmm. the cowboys did, did it in different ways. And the cowboys is also, you know, a 1970s movie with John Wayne, but that being said, it's incredibly interesting. Like looking hmm. at how it, they're approaching it, you know, more as, uh, John Wayne's cook that he brings on his cattle drive. The, the premise of the cowboys, which I thought was, I, I think the one that will stick with me the most of those movies the, the premise is uh, John Wayne's an aging cowboy um, as he, you know, kind of was an aging man in real life. You know, 1972, right. I think he would act until 1976. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, his his last film, I think, was about, you know, a cowboy dying of cancer, which he was dying of cancer. Oh, geez. Um, yeah. Yeah. So this is him. Very late period. He's old. He's gray, a little chubby. Uh, and he has no one to drive his cattle Mm. and so he ends up recruiting the boys from the local schoolhouse like young boys like 12 13 14 15 years old very small children that all know how to rope and ride dang okay yeah because they're like living out west and stuff and you know all the kids get like their own little introduction they're like they call me slim they call me fats you know right and then there's just one kid who's like my name's charlie schultz and i'm jewish Mm. my family's (laughs) moved around a lot because they kind of have to i guess explain yada 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 that one right yeah and uh he also does he he also is uh, spoiler alert for a movie that came out in the 70s i do still highly recommend uh that you see it but uh he is the only child that dies uh yeah of course um but yeah, it's a very like very good, very compelling movie. But um, John Wayne's cook is a man named Mister Nightlinger, uh, played by an actor named Roscoe Lee Brown. I don't know if you've ever heard of him. I I'm not entirely sure. Possibly. Yeah, he, yeah. He's uh, he was a character actor. He was in a lot of different things. Um, but you know, he is as the kids you know point out, he's the first black man any of them have ever seen. And he also kind of plays with it in an interesting way. Like he, he, he kind of messes with the kids. Hmm. He absolutely steals every single scene he's in. He's lit well in a lot of scenes that are at night in a time when, you know, it was typical if it was a mostly white movie that black actors were not lit well. Hmm. He is so far from any type of stereotypical black role for that time period and yet is totally playing with and and just messing with everyone around him about their expectations of who he who he is and who he should be Hmm, um that's interesting like he, yeah he, he's like telling the kids like this fantastical story about how his father was a more warrior a Moorish warrior and stuff and, huh. you know, uh, got a princess and everything. And, you know, he's probably just kind of making all of this stuff up, 
you know, and I think that's the text of the the subtext of the movie is that he's making this up. He's having a go at these kids and and their ignorance. But right. he immediately wins everyone over except for the bad guys because the bad guys decide they're going to try to lynch him. But oh, then, Jesus. you know, he he has the last word and, you know, exacts immediate revenge, which mm. is also good to see. Yes, very much. You know, but all of these things that you see uh, in these types of movies, because, you know, they're trying to demonstrate the prejudices of the time. Right. Um, and I think an audience in 1972 post-civil rights would have been watching that, seeing him as a sympathetic character, you know? Mm. And, you know, that this is, this would have been, you know, seen as progressive at the time, despite, you know, you're watching a movie where a bunch of small children say the N-word. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, but it, it's played more for laughs at the children's ignorance, that the children hear that from their parents, and they've never met a black person before and have right. yet to come to any of their own conclusions. Because Mr. Nightlinger is is a hero by the end of the movie. Um, right. And, and, and I think maintains his dignity through the entire movie. There's none of the you know, golly, she, golly, gee, shucks, mista, you know, through any mm. of it. Like, there's none of that. Um, but you, the, the thing about these movies, and I think really any historical fiction that we consume, because, you know, these are all from very different decades, yet I think they all have the thing that we want out of historical fiction, which is the one modern or contemporary enlightened person grafted into a historical narrative it's such a fantasy that everybody yeah, kind that of wants true. to see everybody wants an Arya stark you know someone that uh, you know com- seemingly uh you know out of nowhere in a in a world that is comparatively backwards to our own someone that uh seems to have modern sensibilities and that we uh-huh. can kind of get some pleasure out of seeing someone you know uh stand up to the rigidity of society at that time right exactly yeah but yeah all all immensely immensely interesting and and great movies that I w- that I would recommend and especially slow west for I think really playing with the expectations of who you think the hero of a movie is. Interesting. As well. Fascinating. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I think so. This doesn't have a ton to do with our topic today <laughs> at the UCM. I hope you're breathing all right. We've, uh, you might have noticed that we're uh, 10,000 feet above sea level in this part of the museum. Now that you mention it, that does make a lot of sense, yeah. The air's a little thin here. A little thin, a little thin. Maybe that's why I can't land a joke today. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, Joe's feeling lightheaded. Um, Yeah, Uh, so what we're going to be talking about today is the Incan Empire. Mm. Now, Joe, what do you know about the Incas? Well, um... They were in Peru, and it stretched down most of the uh, west west coast of South America, if I'm not mistaken, in specifically the Andes mountain range. Um, what I also, uh, yeah, I find, I find, I know they had roads and def- different systems to get around 
uh, the yeah. Andes Mountains, but they couldn't use the. I think we also just covered this. You like already recently. brought up the. You, you've already brought up the Emperor's New Groove, so I assume you know that much. You know, I was gonna say it's everything <laughs> that the Emperor's New Groove is not, but you know, an inter- <laughs> if you want to get any idea of how I was as a as a child learning about um, ancient Mesoamerican <laughs> and South American civilizations. I was trying to, which I also just find this very interesting. I was trying to find movies that would like represent that because I'm a visual learner and I like to see things mm-hmm, mm-hmm. sometimes. And when I watched The Emperor's New Groove after kind of like contextualizing the Incan Empire, I was like, oh, it takes place during this time. What a fun watch with all this context. And it's disappointing because yeah. it's like not, at, it's just the arc, maybe like a little cartoon influence here and there. That's yeah, yeah, it. little references. I mean, the thing about The Emperor's New Groove that's actually kind of, that fascinated me as a child and and still to this day is The Emperor's New Groove is one of the only pieces of fictional media that I can think of that represents indigenous peoples where the main uh, plot it, it, and especially for children, the main plot is not incoming settlers or incoming uh, colonizers. Like that's that very interesting. Like, yeah, think like think about like yes, we've all at this point seen movies uh, made and starring Native Americans. We're aware of books and media, poetry, you name it, by right. Native American. Uh, authors and and you know creators um but all of those things that we sort of have as a mass cultural um consumption it is very much the paradise lost type of feeling of things like Mm. the the plot is is all basically like scott odell books you know right i shouldn't say the plots but you know the themes are always the, the waning days of a of a noble civilization that is on mm-hmm. the verge of collapse or some or a or a people's trying to hold on to their culture as they are assimilated into uh european society like that is at least in mass culture cuz i'm sure it exists elsewhere and just you know sure. because ma- there's no desire for it in mass culture it doesn't come across you know my it doesn't come across my curriculum as often. Right, right. But I, I think it's fair to say that is the theme of most Native American-centric stuff that makes it into the mainstream. The The, the narrative is always set, really centered around uh, European colonialism. Mm-hmm. You know, there's very few where you get to see an indigenous drama play out where they are all of the agents at play. Yeah. The Emperor's sure. New Groove, you know, is definitely very Disneyfied and there's, you know, certain things that are, you know, you probably I th- there's nothing like you said, there's nothing about it that is particularly Incan. And right. I think that's part of the joke and part of why it works. It's so off that <laughs> you can't even say it's like stereotyping anything because you don't even know what it's stereotyping. You don't even yeah. recognize the culture that it's loosely based on. Right. Um, you just right. know there's llamas and a lot yeah. of gold. And uh, and otherwise, that's why I think it's still kind of pure and earnest to me at mm. least. And I'm sure there's 
there's probably people out there that take more offense to it, but at least from where I'm coming from, it seems so harmless because I don't think it, it doesn't reinforce any particular stereotypes because it seems to take place so far out of our reality. Yeah, that's true. Cause like, I was going to say like, I know like brother bears, like one of those other examples of like a non, yeah, bro- but, brother but bear. The- yeah. Right, like, it's one of those where you don't have settler colonialism playing into, like, the main plot. However, it does fall into the category of turning people of color, indigenous people, or black people into animals, which is, that's kind of problematic, as we found, uh, at least I've seen, but, you know. And and that, you know, while the cast was not all white, the cast of Emperor's New Groove, you know, nobody, none of the main characters that I can think of are, uh, are Incan. Right, are, exactly. Are, 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 are even Peruvian. Because what, yeah. you've got, you've got Eartha, <laughs> you've got Eartha Kitt, who's a woman of color, but mm-hmm. not, not Peruvian. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have David Spade, John Goodman, and yeah. Patrick Warburton. All, right. all white guys. Yeah, exactly. Yes. So, hmm. Yeah. But you know, uh, this doesn't necessarily make yeah. that a bad thing for the for the mm-hmm. time, though. Compared to you know what else we have going on, but well, I, yeah, because it, you know, you know that. But isn't that the weird thing? Isn't that yeah. the weird thing that Pocahontas feels more condescending and more insulting than the Emperor's New Groove? S- yeah, strangely enough, it does. Isn't that weird? It's weird. Isn't that weird how that turned out? <laughs> yeah, that's. Oh my gosh! It's no one saw that coming. New. No. Hi there, my name is Colby White, and I'm one of the hosts from Force Football Facts, a podcast where my friend Zachary and I force our other friend Tyrell to give us insights into the game, even though he doesn't know anything about it. We use our humor to bring you weekly football news in a new way that takes fan opinions into account, while also helping new fans understand why we love this game so much. You can check us out on our website, forcefootballfacts.com, or wherever podcasts are available. Hope to see you soon. But, you know, history, the the thing about the Incan Empire to understand, I think, is, you know, a lot of kind of what you were saying, you know, there's mm-hmm. this massive empire uh, on the Pacific uh, side of South America. Um, and, you know, they, they have incredibly impressive architecture and and a uh, unbelievable, unprecedented for its time road network. Yeah. Um. I think the thing, though, that people, because we all think when we come across something, oh, this must be how it always was. Right. The Incan Empire was oddly short-lived. The Incas themselves, while not necessarily newcomers to the region, were fairly, uh, were fa- were a fairly recent development as far as an empire went in South America. Hmm. Yeah. Um. So today we're not going to cover really the fall of the Incan empire so much. Um, the, the whole Pizarro, uh, debacle and, you know, basically understanding that smallpox toppled this empire, like a lot of, uh, like a lot of, you know, otherwise hardy civilizations that the Europeans came into contact with. In some cases, smallpox spread so quickly on the continent that it reached places that, you know, white settlers would not arrive for decades or centuries later. Whoa. 
And this adds to the narrative at the time of this place was always unpopulated. Mm, um, so, you know, r- right now where we live in a world where we are increasing the number, the population number of what uh, the North and South America was pre-Columbian exchange. One thing to keep in mind is when those people were bringing back reports of how many people lived in the new world, when they were bringing that back to Europe, a lot of it was because so many people died of smallpox that they simply, that was kind of in earnest. I I hate to say, Mm -hmm. but that was like, oh, well, nobody's here. Might as well move in to vast virgin unsoiled by the touch of man. Uh, You know, never mind that there's all of these domesticated plants already here, but you know, Wow, yeah. Like yeah, that that's the the sort of fascinating thing about this is how 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 odd this misunderstanding mm. of, of the whole thing was from the beginning and how sort of warped scholarship was from then on out, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Also one thing because a, a lot of what I've got here today is pulled from the book uh 1491 by Charles C. Mann. Uh, and he yes fantastic book both of us recommend i do appreciate that he's such a pedant for uh spelling inca with a k interesting yes and Hmm. he he points out that there's a romanized standardization type of thing of incan writing and it uses k for the sound um so that we get so that so that we do not misinterpret the c sound since you know in english and a lot of other languages c can have a variety of sounds sure yeah uh and it's actually the spanish spelling that uses the c oh interesting. yes that being said uh, the the inca did not use c or k right Um, yeah (laughs) no, no phonetic languages here yeah. Um, so, you know, take it as you will. It's kind of like the spelling of Hanukkah. Um, you know, it, it, is yeah. spelled, it is spelled with a CH sometimes, but, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a word from a different language. It's kind of okay. Fair enough. Yes. Uh, so we're, uh, we're, we're at altitude. We're lightheaded. Are we ready to get into it? Yeah, I think let's do it. All right. All right. Let's dive in. So, in one sense, our society is becoming increasingly accepting of nonlinear history, or at least the idea of a history with no singular narrative or progression, that stories and people bounce in and out of the edges of our scope as we try to recount the past. Telling a story is no longer considered the story, but one of many that weave together only to unravel again later. Uh, One problem with this, however, is that it is becoming difficult for any one individual to wrap their brains around the continuity in a meaningful way, especially when most of us still feel like history needs to be uh, divided into different eras and ages. Like uh, Oxford University started teaching in 1096. They added math a couple of centuries later, 
and yet calculus still wouldn't be added until that curriculum, until after it was invented in the mid-17th century. Thomas Jefferson, our third president, was fascinated by fossils and paleontology, but both didn't believe in the concept of extinction and would die decades before science recognized what dinosaurs were. In a single century, 4,000 years ago, China entered its Bronze Age, Egypt was already in its 12th dynasty and building pyramids, the first palaces were being built on Crete, and the last woolly mammoths died out. All that happened at the same time, and I can say it out loud, and yet I am still flummoxed every time I think about how Anne Frank and MLK were both born in 1929, about how Coca-Cola and Bram Stoker coexisted, about how Pablo Picasso lived to see the entire span of the Beatles' career, or even how the last survivor of an American slave ship died in 1940. History is a mess, and therefore endlessly fascinating in its highs and lows. This brings us to the Incan Empire. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I get, yeah, I get, Jesus, yeah, that's a yeah. hell of an introduction, but that is really crazy to think about, though, I, all of those, those kind of similar dates, um, yeah, right? but yeah, for real, now, and I'm curious to see how it weaves itself into a similar thread here with the Incan Empire as well. Yeah, so kind of through this, what we're going to be talking about today Keep in mind these dates as we go through, because all of this is happening completely outside of, you know, the European sphere of influence until mm -hmm. pretty much the very end when Fizarro uh, uh, and, you know, about 100 men conquer an empire. The, just think, think about how this is happening at the same time as all of these other things that we sort of associate really with uh, the... Uh, late medieval period and early renaissance all of this stuff is happening at the same time and it's kind of completely out of our idea of the progression of world history so like i said this brings us to the <laughs> right exactly <laughs> so when europeans arrived it was the largest empire on earth whoa bigger than the contemporary ottomans russian and Ming dynasties. Jeez. Bigger than bigger than Great Zimbabwe. Uh, and in particular, much larger than any European nation at that time. Uh, wow. Uh, one, Charles C. Mann in the book says it would be like if a uh, if an empire controlled from St. Petersburg to Cairo. Whoa. Yes. Yeah, it is a lot of land, yeah. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Oh, we're going to get into it. Uh it was so large and adaptable that it stretched through different biomes. Mountains, desert, and rainforest. So, you know, like you said earlier, you know, this is happening in the Andes, but this is also part of the Amazon. The True. Amazon rainforest and parts of the desert to the south. Mm, yeah, the um, Atacama? Atacama? Yeah, that's right, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, and, you know, the, uh, all, all of this, you know, this, this region is just consumed by this, em by this mm. really short-lived empire, 
but you know this is this is demonstrating the power the Inca had and what they were able to amass. Uh, tying all of this together was a bureaucratic government and a twenty-five thousand mile network of roads. Jeez. Mm-hmm. Nothing on earth like this in any other civilization is comparable. You know, even on the continent, right. the Aztec Empire is not as big as this. Wow. Yeah. Super fascinating. So the 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 Inca were sort of described as brutal and efficient. Uh, they held very, very tight control over uh, these regions. They wanted to unite multiple ethnicities, cultures, and religions. They kind of wanted... Because th this whole area historically, um, you know, because the civilization here goes back thousands of years right um but it would have all been you know kind of like we think about with a, any region on earth any especially something that you know goes into different um environmental territories there's going to be one culture here that lives in this area and then if there's a natural barrier um another will start over there inca were the most wealthy mm. which is sort of what's notable here one thing to kind of keep in mind is not all of these people would have been considered Inca. This would have been the Incan Empire, right. but this is lots of different language and cultural groups that they've sort of absorbed. They held gotcha. the wealth, though, and they held the control. That'll do it. Yep, yep. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes, you know, we don't think of England as the Cornish, you know. No, like, no, no, we do not. Yes, you know, the, this is like anything else. You have a region with a lot of different tribes, and just like England, you know, someone won in in, right. in in terms of history and took over the areas, and, you know, a couple centuries later, everybody's speaking the same languages, practicing mostly the same religion. Uh, mm. You know, this, this is comparable to... A, a situation that we would see anywhere else on earth china uh britain uh you know and, and in this case uh this particular uh you know part of south america right so what what sort of had been a misread of Incan of incan technology was you know they had this great empire and they have no wheel you know they, they don't mm. have the simple machines that we associate uh, with technology, you know, whereas in, uh, you know, Asia and Europe and Africa, you know, th there would have been metal technologies. Uh, the Inca focused their technology in textiles. Mm. Yeah, they had very sophisticated weaving and knot tying, which at first, you know, doesn't really sound like anything until you realize the Inca had a writing system. Oh, and an incredibly complex writing system called talking knots of their language, uh, Rumasumi. Hmm. And basically they could tie knots sort of in a binary code, similar to computer programming. Whoa, that's interesting. Yeah. They were able to weave weapons out of fibers. Well, wait, uh, they, what? Yes. They had incredibly effective um, slings that they would use in battle they had projectile you know technology Pop, you know, they, that's they were, awesome 
Yeah, and you know they're dead. They're deadly enough uh, as as anyone else with you know spears and clubs, but right. projectile technology and also flammable t- uh, tech, uh, you know, projectile technology that they would, <laughs> you know, basically throw exploding balls of fire at their enemies. Oh my god! With, the, <laughs> okay. with these slings, yes. Well, that's so terrifying. the Inca, yeah, the Inca were formidable. Uh, as as a fighting force as well not only were you know and this is on top of being an incredibly organized people Mm. the you know the road system it you know doesn't really work if you are using wheels right the steep steps would really have only worked for traveling on foot and for llamas you know this is a place this is a place without horses Horses and, and Pizarro actually ran into this issue, and it's actually been remarked like the Inca probably would have been able to, if not for smallpox, the Inca would have been able to repel um, the Spanish because the the Spanish could not make use of their roads. The Inca basically, uh, you know, it would be like, uh, you know, you, you, you're you're trying to come to and take over a place and you can't even move on their infrastructure. You can't use their own infrastructure against them because they've just got men on foot and llamas. Yeah, they can outrun you and outmaneuver you before you would even exactly. be able to make a move. Exactly. And and even towards the end, we're developing technology to take down mounted cavalry. Like, they, they could throw slings that could bring down horses. Oh, gee, Wow. Yes. That's pretty crazy. Yes. Uh, you know, history was his history could have been very different if it wasn't for some microbes, you know? Yeah, for real. Well, it's also interesting about the adaptability of the technology. Yeah. Which I think is what's it's it's something that's not always as remarked upon when yeah. when discussing settler colonialism or in that case just conquering. Yeah. Um, but I think it's something that's you know, obviously we're not focusing on that, so I don't want to spend any more yeah. time than we have to. But I, I do no, no, think no. It's, it speaks volumes to the technology itself that one can use the same thing to adapt to in a completely different situation to something that doesn't ex- is not um, native to the area and it being yes. actually very effective. Interesting. Well, that was the, that was their whole thing. They had to adapt to, uh, you know, the deserts, the mountains, right. and the. Uh, and parts of the Amazon rainforest, you know, uh, geographically, they they did have some issues. The empire really uh, benefited most from going uh, e- uh, east-west rather than north-south because of the mm. mountains. And, you know, obviously the, you know, it's, it's difficult to, say, conquer the Amazon rainforest. Yeah, it's, for it's, sure. It's difficult enough to even walk through it. it yeah, literally. Yeah. <laughs> but the uh, this is this show this demonstrates their adaptability that they mm-hmm. were they were more than capable of all of this. Um, but but you know this is the shape that their technology takes, and you know the Spanish misjudged this as primitive people living as if you know, the, they had been like this since the beginning of time. Wow, yeah. You know, the uh, they're, they're clearly heathens, you know, in the eyes of the Spanish. They're not Christian. Right, yeah. Their, their idea of value was completely different from the Spanish. Um, as we've talked about previously in our uh, exhibit talking about El Dorado, the Spanish were very perplexed by 
the use of gold in uh, South America and the Caribbean, because gold did not hold monetary value, it held more value as a uh, as a as a craft as a craft item. It would be kind of like we don't value oil paintings for the monetary value of the pigment and the oils that make them. We value oil paintings because they are a work of art. If you distill right. them down into their components, they're no longer valuable. Right, exactly. Yeah, or valuable for those same reasons. So for the Spanish, they took this to mean that gold was everywhere. Because South Americans in particular really only used gold as a decorative item. Gotcha. Yes. Huh. Um, And the other thing to keep in mind, they have no money. Oh. This now we're entire, talking. Yeah, this entire bureaucratic empire, uh, there is no, there is no concept of money. Um, there's Fascinating. Most certainly a hierarchy, uh, mm-hmm. as as in any empire. But there there was a different idea of how to expand power, and we're going to get into it in a moment. Because one thing you have to understand about the Inca is just how effective and efficient they were. Hmm. Um, As you have this culture basically becoming dominant, what the Inca did is kind of like what was done in the United States, where, um, you know, either uh, from immigrants or through slavery or both, the United States pretty quickly realized, oh, it's most efficient to grow this thing here. And it's more efficient to grow and this thing here. And then we're going to have the factories here. And we're going to be able to share all of this stuff amongst each other and move all of this material around. The Inca were doing this in a mm. you know pre-industrialized world. And this is part of what basically convinces a bunch of people to be a part of an empire like this is the fact that everybody is able to live better lives because everybody has access to things that they would not if they were only in the region that they were living in. If you're living in one place and you're isolated culturally and economically, you're like, all right, well, I can only make goods out of what's around me. I can only eat what is around me. I can only make structures out of what's around me. The Inca roll in and they're like actually we're going to take your entire population we're going to move you over here you're going to raise this crop or this animal or make this thing and we're going to trade it up and down the empire and Hmm. everybody gets to have it in fact surplus was seen as a status symbol like there was not necessarily the the scarcity that we have that drives a lot of our economic processes now um where we place a lot of value on things because uh you know we feel like we might not be able to get them again gotcha yeah that's very interesting yeah and in contemporary scholarship this is incredibly tempting to look at as an example of you know functioning socialism or some type of communism some type of marxism some derivative of that right but i don't think that's entirely appropriate either because this is happening so far out of 
any sphere like that. Yeah. I I get the temptation, and there's certainly similar ideas at play here, but I wonder if it is just being a little too reductive to say, Mm -hmm. ah, this is a functioning communist society. No, I I agree. It's it's reductive, and I also think it's doing a disservice to the uh, culture doing it. You know, I don't... I think that's kind of one of the issues at hand and a lot of times where we try to look at functioning socialist or communist societies is it's always you're like basically putting a western gaze on cultures all over the world and also a philosophy in contemporary times let's say like a hundred years ago which i think is kind of ridiculous that we haven't figured out like a better fix to that because there's a lot of other stuff going on not to like Mm -hmm. diss communism or anything but it's this it's one of those critiques that I find a bit like, eh, this is kind of weird. Like, I don't know why we have to go back in time to like project yeah. what Marx said and be like, he was so prolific that it was happening so before this. And it's like, I don't know if it's even like, mm-hmm. it doesn't even sound similar in that way. Not th- like, well, I guess it's, it's oh, also, it's, it's also an empire. It's also, yeah, a, which is if, directly against the philosophy in that sense. We're, we're going to get into it in a minute, but you know, this is, in its own way, its own type of feudalism, you know. Yeah, but what I what I will say though is it is a very interesting structure to think about now in yes. in terms of the idea yes. to like kind of refute the idea of oh well the only reason we're so advanced is because we have capitalism and we have this idea of of demand for goods so people have to work because they can own things and basically yes. you're always doing things. Whereas in this situation, it's hey I make this, you make that, everybody's connected. We have this very interesting system. It connects us all together. That way you can eat and I can eat and that's cool, which is very interesting as a concept because I don't think even nowadays we really, I mean, I think people are starting to really play with this idea and question it more so than maybe let's say like 40 years ago. Um, And I think that that's very fascinating in a way to Mm -hmm, direct ourselves mm now. But I think in in ending on that point, it's kind of like maybe we shouldn't apply older philosophies to these other ideas that are more ancient that can then be reapplied and recontextualized in contemporary society. I mean, it's also, to me, I think more of like an interesting type of convergent evolution type of thing where a lot has, other people I think have pointed this out from non-Western countries or, or marginalized countries, but you know, you, I'm, while Marx is very famous and I think what people identify with him is how beautifully he articulates the issues of power. Sure, yeah. Um, and, and and how you can hold economic power over someone and they don't even really see it the same way that, you know, you would see the crown on a king's head and understand power. Right, of course. The, and that that is what is so profound about it and why it still reverberates, um, you know, uh, at, you know, uh, centuries later sure yeah you know and i think we can look at this as evidence of um humanity coming to those conclusions or coming to similar conclusions as to how to run a society uh independently right you know i don't think without is some someone who's never heard of Marx? If you're a thinker in a non-Western society mm. that you know pre or post Marx and had never read it, I think you know you would be like, 
oh yes, you know, the poor do not have control. You know, that's yeah. that's not necessarily new information. <laughs> right, of course. <laughs> old, you know, that's been around for a while, so. Yes, yes. And, you know, the, as we're going to get into, the Inca have some of their own problems. Um, I don't think anyone's, I don't think we were claiming anyone was perfect here. No, no. Uh, you know, this is, uh, it's, it's humanity. It's it's complicated. There's There's some good ideas. There's some less good ideas. Yeah, that's uh, a good way to put it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, because at the end of the day, the thing to understand is this was a project, you know, much like uh, other projects we saw all over the world, you know, inside and outside of Europe, where you had multiple cultures, one culture asserts their dominance and sort of sees this as the signal to homogenize mm. uh to some extent and assimilate everyone around them to better the efficiency because they say well we're on top there must be a reason for it and we can apply this elsewhere mm. um and this still sort of has echoes today like even in this you know part of south america there are uh i don't know if you've ever heard of uh, cholitas i think so it's not yeah, familiar Chil- Chilitas, uh, it's the, um, they're, uh, uh, it, it's sort of the fashion style, uh, it, it's become quite popular, the, um, or, I mean, popular, like, globally as, as an understood thing of, uh, these indigenous women of Bolivia that, you know, wear these dresses, and they can be quite elaborate, you know, um, based on lots of different traditions, but they wear bowler hats. Gotcha. Okay. Yes. Yes. And they're very politically active, and it's even sort of become like uh, a, a sort of uniform of them when they, you know, go on television or right. doing any kind of official activity. And they're, in particular, this is, uh, you know, something you see with the uh, Aymara people, who hmm. uh, are an indigenous group in this part of South America and Bolivia, um, and they were one of these cultures that was conquered, subjugated, and assimilated by the Inca. Hmm. So they even, you know, you know, not only do they see themselves as different from sort of the uh, uh, lighter-skinned, mixed uh, people of Bolivia who are, you know, maybe to us would read as people of color, but in South American context are the descent are really the descent partially the descendants of Europeans. Right. Right. You know, they they are uh they are themselves discriminated against as an indigenous people in a in that country. Interesting. Um, and perhaps more famous is uh Evo Morales, the uh socialist mm. president of Bolivia, uh, ex-president now, who was, uh, um, who was exiled uh, at one point. Uh, there was a bit of a kerfuffle uh, with, you know, he's an incredibly progressive, environmentally minded, uh, you know, president. And I think one of the more, if not the one of the most left-leaning political figures on the global stage, hmm. definitely did not seem to have any issue with, you know, conveniently that he keeps getting reelected, you know, long past right. what was supposed to be allowed in Bolivia. It's 
sort of a difficult thing where it's like uh, he's really great and socialist and everything. He just kind of keeps uh, wanting to stay in power. Right. All right. You know, like a king. (laughs) This is getting. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's incredibly complicated. We're not going to get into it because, of course, there's also some U.S. involvement there as well. um, Yeah. That further complicates this. But I I only bring up uh, Morales and the Cholitas and the uh, Aymara as sort of an example that there's this is demonstrating how the um the cultural mosaic of this region is still there to this day meaning it was still there back in you know um the uh back in the uh, 15th and 16th century that this was uh this was a part of um that the makeup of the region that it was not yet it was not one culture right right that makes sense yes and that the, the the inca were uh were absorbing all of these regions mm-hmm. and the cultures and religions within them because of this this ability to move things around with this network of roads the the ability to have access to all of these different things they're able to do enormous construction projects you know right. notably machu picchu uh the uh the city of cusco um just enormous warehouses full of goods for the people of the empire. Wow. Uh, again, the, again, the surplus was a sign of success that, you know, people didn't want for anything mm-hmm. um, or for their necessities. At least there were poor people. There were people that spoke different languages still. Um, right. But this was that this is, this is a bit different than I think what we, uh, what we might think of. Um, in, in terms of meeting people's needs at the very least. Mm, interesting. But you have people living at 10,000 and 14,000 feet above sea level. This is an enormous project of, uh, of, 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 of engineering and just of, of moving material around. Yeah. Doesn't make it yeah. easy. Definitely. <laughs> yeah, but but because of this bureaucracy of of the empire, they had better access to a wider range of resources. Um, if you lived in one part of the empire, you grew beans. In another part, you might grow squash. In another part, you might grow cotton. In another part, you might raise livestock for meat. Mm. Um, and you could trade up and down the mountains. This was it, it was dubbed a vertical archipelago. That's fascinating. Yeah. I like the, that. Yeah, up and down the mountain, this stuff is moving. Like I said before, it's sort of an east-west movement because of the mountains is, is right. the most easy. Um, uh, but how did it get like this? I, mm. I imagine you're asking. I, I am, quite literally. In my head, I'm like, oh, wow. How did we get here? <laughs> how did we get here? You may ask yourself, well, how did I get here? <laughs> let the water hold me down yeah um (laughs) that's always in my head all the time so oh same as it ever was same as it ever was (laughs) so for most of history this was actually a very disorganized region Mm. um like i said before mosaic of different cultures completely uh heterogeneous just different uh cultures religions languages um but there were three instances throughout history, as far as uh, uh, we've been able to uh, tell through uh, archaeology and history and of the region, there were three different times that there was a dominant culture that took over the region. Hmm, interesting. 
in uh, 700 BCE to Whoa. about the year zero. It's a little fuzzy. We're going back in time a bit. There were the uh, Chavin mm. who took over. And then they sort of fizzle out uh, around that time, sort of. You know, imagine this is happening about the time of the beginnings of Christianity. That's right. fizzling out, that first round. Then there are the Wari, who mm. during that time controlled the coast, and they sort of start to take over the area. They're technologically advanced. Um, they're reaching out a little bit towards the Lake Titicaca region. Um, alongside them are also the Tuvanaku, mm. um, if I'm uh, pronouncing that correctly, uh, and this lasts for about a thousand years from about that the time of the end of the Wari to the first millennium CE. Gotcha. But so the, this this fizzles out and the Inca comes along. It mm. is the greatest and also the shortest lived of all of these. It doesn't happen until about uh, 400 years later in the 15th century. Oh, wow. Yes. That's very interesting. And then remember, keep an eye on that date. 15th century, in a little over a century, they will be crushed by the Spanish. Yeah. So here, history starts to speed up a little bit. Wow. That's... Yeah. I, re- mm-hmm. you know, I didn't think it was like 90 years or so before, yeah. <laughs> like, in Spanish introduction. Like, I know you said short. Short to me in the span of ancient history or, or in this t- time period is like, you know, 400 years is relatively short or 200 years, right? But yes. 90 or, or 100, let's say, is mm-hmm. like, whoa, that's uh, pretty yeah. quick. That's a pretty quick uh yeah, quick step on the gas for the literally. Inca. Yeah. Yeah, they're gonna, well, oh, geez, I'm curious to hear more. <laughs> Yes. Um, so in 1350, uh, they are considered not a, an important culture politically in the region. Mm. Um, but there's sort of an origin story to them. The legend goes, this is sort of the more legendary history. Gotcha. And it's meant to illustrate how few Inca there actually were in the beginning. The Inca, for unknown reasons left Lake Titicaca uh, with four brothers and four sisters and leave to form Cusco, hmm. the, the, the city that would become the capital of this empire. Right. Um, in approximately, uh, from what we can tell from the archaeology of the region, it does seem that in about 1200 CE, they moved to the region... Um, there's stories of there being, it, from the oral history, there's supposedly only about 200 of them, humble beginnings, straw huts. Uh, so if you go either by the archaeology or the oral history or the um, the more legendary history, mm. they all seem to agree the Inca were not many and they they moved to the region uh, to that would form Cusco about... Uh, uh, you know, about a hundred years before then, gotcha. uh, in this time frame, maybe from Lake Titicaca, we we don't really know. Um, for uh, for sure. Interesting. Uh, so then, by fourteen thirty eight, for some reason that's not entirely specified, 
uh, the Inca become the sworn enemies of the Chanka, hmm. a uh, another uh, cultural uh, group uh, that you know is basically now opposed to them. And uh, the the other thing to understand is Inca is what we call the empire. However, Inca was kind of more of a title. Oh, interesting. So so it's kind of like their their chieftain, their prince was called Inca. Huh. Yes. So th- at, at this time in 1438, there is a uh the leader of the Inca is a uh is a is named Wiracoca Inca. Oh. Which roughly translates to valiant prince. Now that's yeah. a title. Yes. And I, I I don't mean this in in like in like a uh, noble savage kind of way, but it's like kind of called Drogo vibes because like at a at a young age, he says he will conquer half the world. You know, he's uh, wow. <laughs> he's immediately like making like some pretty big like you know, assumptions of what he is going to do. Right. They're like, all right, slow down there. You know, let's let's get the neighborhood first. You're going to see he might have overstepped it just a little bit. Just a little. Just a little bit. So he is, you know, basically they're building up steam to take on the Chanka and Werenkoka says, "Mm, never mind, and flees with Uh, uh, (laughs) three of his sons. And among his sons is his successor, the son that's supposed to uh, take over after him, right? Right. Gotcha. Yes. So he flees. But who should stay behind but one of his younger sons, Inca Yumpaki. So Yumpaki doesn't run. He stays and he fights. And Yumpaki supposedly was so brave and such a great fighter he fights and wins against the Chanka. Interesting. Uh, yes. And uh, so he wants to celebrate. Uh, you know, his his father and his brothers come back. And <laughs> uh, he is going to have the leaders skinned, which is, you know, the style at the time. Uh, you know, it's just kind of what you do with your enemies. Isn't that how you deal I'm with sorry, your enemies? I'm sorry, did you say skinned? Yes, skinned. Oh, that's fun. So flayed, I guess, in a certain sense. That's... Yeah, well, you know, you got to make a point, I guess. So yeah, yeah, I huh. guess it, you know nothing makes a point like skinning a human being. <laughs> yeah, literally, I mean, yeah. True. So his so uh, Yupaki Yupanki. Th- there's a tradition for them that the winner must wipe his feet on his enemies uh, uh, before they are skinned. Oh, okay. So you Yupanki offers this to his father because. Dad, I, I won this for you. Are you proud of me? Are you proud of me now? You know, it's just right. got that type of energy. Gotcha. And uh, Warren Coca says, no, uh, oh. actually, I will not. You won this battle for your older brother who's going to take the throne. Ooh. You won this for him. Ooh. You won this for your older brother. Um, And yeah, no. So immediately we're starting some issues here. Yeah, it's a lot of drama. Yupanki is like, no, I won this for you. I'm not I'm not letting my brother wipe his feet. He's not our ruler yet. And also, I did your guys' job for you. Yeah, you ran. I'm here. That's, yeah, uh, we might be paraphrasing him a bit, but Probably, can, can, most likely. You can imagine how this played out. Yeah. So 
the father is like, hey, remember your place. And in what was later admitted by his generals as impulsive, decides to murder his son, Yumpanki. Oh, that's yes. dark. That's not how yes. I expected that to go. Yes. However, uh, before uh, Warenkoka can uh, kill Yumpanki, Yumpanki hears about it and mm. exposes his father and has him exiled. Interesting. Yes. And then Yumpanki uh, promotes himself to uh, Pakakati, which means world shaker, Whoa. and then says, okay, I'm going to conquer everything. Dang. Okay. Yes. Yes. It's so. Oof. Yes. So, despite uh, his father's, you know, expectations of conquering half the world, his son that he did not have any confidence in turns around and says, "Okay, stand back. Watch me work." Wow. You know, cracks mm-hmm. the knuckles and just kind of goes for it. Pretty much, yes. He spends Dang. the next 25 years expanding the Incan Empire. You know what? I'm going to say it. Good for him. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Good for him. Um, so the Inca, he, he proclaims that the Inca were descended from the sun. So he wants to keep sort of promoting this idea of the Inca are the, are the best. They're the rightful rulers of this region. Right. But the smart thing here, and maybe the little bit more insidious thing, is he realizes that military might is not the only way to do this, nor is it really the best way to do this. Hmm. Yeah. Are you familiar with um, territorial and hegemonic empires? Not really, to be honest. Okay, so basically... um, Certain scholarship says there are mainly two types of empires, territorial and hegemonic. Hmm. Um, So territorial would be, I march in with an army, take everything over uh, and set up, set up shop with my own people. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. Hegemonic kind of implies hegemony. You actually go in and you say, hey, you can keep your local rulership, but you are under my control now. You basically have dukes and vassals. Um, huh. And territorial is more secure. Right, of course, because you don't. But it is it is very expensive. And Charles C. Mann points out that, um, you know, basically over the two continents of North and South America, there there are no horses. There's no mounted military. And travel is relatively slow compared to Europe and Asia, where you have a, at that point, a very long history of mounted armies. Yeah, for Um, sure. And you can move fairly quickly. You have large beasts of burden. The, you know, the, the Asian empires, whether it's the Chinese, the Mongols, uh, the Huns, uh, you know, the, the Indo-Aryans, whoever, Mm -hmm. uh, they all have horses they can afford the kind of more expensive option of territorial right it makes sense yeah um but hegemonic empire uh, made much more sense to the peoples Mm -hmm. of north and south america and that is what the inca would do interesting Uh, interesting people 
they wanted to give people some kind of idea of regional control, but they did it in an interesting way that's very subtle, and you can see the cunning and the long game plan of Yumpanki. So mm. basically what Yumpanki does is he sends an army to a different people called the uh, Chincha. Oh, okay. Um, and it, this is in 1450, so he's been in power for a couple of years now. He sends an right. army there and says, hey, we're just here to make friends. In fact, we're going to bury you in treasure and gifts. We're going to give you so much stuff. Hmm. And they do. They There's no double cross. They give them everything, everything they want. Um, and, you know, then they come back later and say, hey, wouldn't it be nice if um, we... Uh, you know, didn't just give you goods, but, like, we actually exchanged, like, um, craftsmen, merchants, uh, like, we right. intertwined our economies. And they say, yeah, sure, you've been so generous. Right, of course. Interesting. And then, yes, and then, fast forward the clock, 1490s, getting a little close to a certain event. Yeah. Yupanki's grandson comes back, and they have to submit to the takeover because they are too economically intertwined. Mm. Yes. So the strategy then is you basically, you you get said culture that you're trying to encompass into your empire so economically tied to you that they literally do not have a choice to succeed. Yes, they are dependent on you. That's fascinating. Collapse. Yes. That is literally like if you're playing a passive mode on something, that's the way you do it. Yes. That's, that's really interesting, actually, though. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Incredibly. Huh. And, you know, you can see the long game they were planning. Because, again, 1490s, they, you know, hadn't been in absolute power for that long. And this would sort of reflect how it was on the rise when the Spanish showed up. But yeah. it's difficult to say how much longer they would have lasted or if this would have been a, you know, it, it's impossible to say. It's a great what if. And I only say that not to diminish the accomplishments of the Inca because mm. truly spectacular uh, material culture and clearly severely organized and who knows yeah. what they would have become. However, the Inca, and when I say the Inca, I mean the ruler, the Inca, uh, had a bit of a had had one glaring let's call it flaw mm -hmm. the only person who was seen as fit to bear the next inca to keep the bloodline pure was the inca's own sister Oh, yes. That doesn't end too well. So when the Spanish showed up, the Inca were kind of a couple of generations into brother-sister uh, inbreeding for their leaders. Gotcha. So it's difficult to say whether this would have played out like the Habsburgs, where, uh, you know, you had incredibly incredible early success yes we took over everything right and then a decline because of the uh the the mental instability of the leaders the the effects of that kind of lack of gene pool right yeah so who knows what would have happened and 
I, I want to be very careful here. I do not want to make it sound like that the Inca were this outlier, savage, backwards people that would do this. Because let's face it, that's... this type of stuff was happening in empires all over the world. Yeah, I mean, that's literally straight from medieval, like, Europe, essentially, yes. and, and later medieval. But yeah, you know, I think even what wasn't, um, wasn't, uh, uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt wasn't his wife his cousin. Um, I don't want to go to a record and say yes, but maybe. <laughs> <laughs> I have no idea. But there are a lot, like there are a lot of weird instances of stuff like that happening, and you're like, oh, that's weird. We never really questioned that, did we? Yeah, I mean, it's convenient. Yeah, I guess. I guess. Yeah. Yeah, you you grew up together, got a lot in common. I mean, guess. Yeah, <laughs> in that in that regard. <laughs> Hey, stepbrother. Stop. Can't. I'm stuck in the washing machine. Oh, my God. This is so <laughs> embarrassing. Um, I'm sorry to yeah. everyone. <laughs> I, I just want to apologize. I just want to, yeah. Um, I like to take this time to apologize and reflect. Um, I've been learning so much. Uh, anyways, uh, so, it, so oh this is God. kind of where the Incan Empire was going and it's this great what if of history. I mean it ends in the right you know, the tragedy of smallpox and subjugation by the Spanish. Mm-hmm. But what you saw was like a growing empire that, you know, had I I'd say potential, yeah. you know clearly, you know, like any empire, uh brutal and mm-hmm. controlled mm-hmm. by a few at the top right but an interesting model that i think you would see uh uh that that you would see in other places at other times and you know it's certainly yeah. something we can learn about as far as like managing regional resources i think which is yeah absolutely a, a fast a fascinating fascinating thought technology yeah, I mean, I think we can both agree that this should be in, like, mainstream education for public schools and other things, especially in the United States. But, you know, that's a different topic, I guess. But yeah, it, I mean, I mean it, it's sometimes the, the unfortunate thing is I think for a lot of people, um, no matter kind of where you are in the world, you want to connect your history to you. you know, yeah, And, and that's why true. you are here. I'm I'm not necessarily... And I don't mean this in a way that, like, we shouldn't learn about other cultures, but, like, if you're living in Iran or the United States, you have different things that are affecting your everyday life. If you're living in uh, Vietnam or uh, Russia, you are are living in the outcomes of different, uh, uh, you know, certain global events and inventions and ideas— uh, but there are things that are maybe more relevant to you than, you know, who Ben Franklin was. Yeah, um, I mean, I think it's more in regards of, like, if you're in a world cultures class or you're in, like, fifth grade or tenth grade or whatever, and you got it's like, okay, we're going to cover Mesoamerica, I think, and South America, I think it's important to highlight certain elements of that rather than just kind of spark noting some important events and specifically focusing on the colonizer viewpoint of things. Which I And I understand your point in regards because that's kind of unfortunately the yeah. the way that the um the, our present day i think cultures and where we come from like 
comes to be is because of yes. that, because of settler colonialism. So I, I understand how that's mm-hmm. diced up, but I think it's kind yeah. of like, you know, I think it's important to also make it clear now that a lot of this history, decolonial thinking, different mm-hmm. conversations are mm-hmm. really at the foreground. It's like, hey, actually, it's really important to understand that like North American, Mesoamerican, and South American empires, peoples, groups, cultures were actually very advanced. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of history here that's not as well known. And it's, well, it yeah. isn't. It's just removed from textbooks because, you know, that's just, it's also just interesting. Well, not not just not just removed. Some of it, I think, is fairly new to academia. And that's not... Yeah, even, yeah. You True. know, yeah. And, and yes, that is a direct result of colonialism that that information was not there in the first place. But I think you, we have to give credit to the people both from Western countries and indigenous, the the historians and the archaeologists of any Mm -hmm. color that are bringing these stories forward. I think there's, you know, a genuine effort right now at at correcting for that. You know, when I, when I, I studied abroad at one point and I had a roommate that was Dutch um, and I sort of asked, like, what is the idea of Americans, you know? And he said that you know a lot about yourselves. Hmm. And that was, you know, kind of an interesting moment because I don't necessarily follow the thing of Americans are dumb. Uh, I I don't necessarily Hmm. like that narrative, not only because maybe I am American, but (laughs) I just know too many smart and self-aware people that were a product of uh, this country and its education, you know, Mm -hmm. and people with very progressive and nuanced ideas and people willing to criticize the establishment with those tools of criticality, criticality that they learned here, you know, that right. if, if you are taught to think properly, that you will turn around and begin to think critically about who taught you that. That being said, you know, anytime you're talking about something And you realize, oh, wow, I know so many details about the Civil War. I know so many details about um, this this particular uh, invention or development. Right. And I don't really know anything about this other country that's a country I've heard of, but I don't really know much else about them other than that they're there, you know? Yeah, but yeah. I also think this feeds into the even like the ideology of America itself, not necessarily mm-hmm. to derail, but I think, you know, yeah. in Europe, you're going to get an education based on Europe and surrounding yeah. countries oh, yeah. because the history's intertwined. I mean, you, you know, if you're living in Italy, mm-hmm. you're going to learn about the Arab empires. You're going to have to learn about even the Vikings, which we'll eventually get into and other things because it, mm-hmm. it affects you. And it, yes. it is in, intertwined. And I think that culturally is so different. And I mean, obviously, like we America comes from a Western European mindset way of thinking and people. Yeah. So, so that, that that is in our world history. Textbook. Yeah. And until it's the American century. And then it's kind of like. And that's when we get into the Americana and the kind of mythos mm-hmm. and other things in the creation of a of a nation of, a, of an, mm-hmm. you know, 
trying to create this identity but not quite understanding it. And I mm-hmm, think that's mm-hmm. – because I think the Americans are dumb thing can be cruel, but yeah. I think at times it can be accurate without being so literal with the word dumb because I think there's this fog of uh, individualism in the country yeah, that, that yeah. we're not – no matter what, for a very long time, that's still going to be there because even in in – in just like opposition you'll find it and i mean mm-hmm. i think we're aware of it now more yeah. than before i think especially with the critique of neoliberalism um mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that definitely is present and i'm also just like i don't know i definitely know that there's like some really hot takes by europeans or you know americans living abroad who want to be very critical of their home country yeah. and i I'm, think that could be yeah. a bad take you and i experienced uh-huh, this you know uh-huh. we've met people who are like oh, well, America, so if if i can if i can put this out there as well. That same person who told me that later remarked that we do not need feminism in in the Netherlands. The women know their place, the men know their place. Not a I good know. take. Yeah, see, that immediately also sets a tone of like, yeah. oh, you just don't care. Okay, yeah. like, so then there's yeah. also this. He, like, he flipped out at me for calling him a dude. He thought it was a very rude word. Dude? I... I yeah, I apologized oh. and I said, I'm sorry, but he, he, he turns, there was this girl we were sitting with, he said, would you call her dude? I'm like, yeah, is that, does that mean something else? And then he leaves Weird. and I asked my other roommate who is German, I said, is that a Dutch thing? And he said, no, I think it's yeah, his thing. <laughs> yeah, I think he's got some issues to work out or something's going on. Jesus, yeah, man. well, you know, he like, he would ask things kind of earnestly. And again, this was someone that I considered like fairly well educated and smart and, you know, kind of well uh-huh. to do. But like, we were living in Australia and, you right. know, he kind of asked like kind of earnestly, like, why, why was Europe so advanced and no one else had the technology to repel them? You know, he, I mean, his, his kind uh. of question was why in, I, I'm, I'm, I'm paraphrasing and I'm making the sound yeah. more blunt than how he asked, but basically yes. Why are the Aborigines so primitive? Why was, why in the uh, 1700s did Europe have all of this technology? And in his right. mind, uh the 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 aborigines were just um throwing spears and boomerangs and sure. you know and living naked in the desert you know right uh, yeah a, 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 you know cuz that's just not part of his education and no. it's not and it's not understanding different kinds of technology and understanding that oh no the aborigines had an incredibly uh, mm-hmm. you know, intricate, rich culture that allowed them to survive in an incredibly inhospitable continent and, yeah, you know, make make use of the resources. And honestly, they kind of didn't need the things that Europe needed to survive. Yeah, exactly. Which I think it's it's this, you know, to bring it full circle, it's that linear thinking of history versus more lateral thinking in a lot of cases. Yeah. It's the idea yeah. that like guns or weaponry or like a wheel will make you the more technologically advanced, but in reality, that's based in geographic locations. That adaptations mm-hmm. don't necessarily mean like, like, I think that's kind of like decolonizing our own sense of like what it means to be advanced. What does technology mean? Do we need computers or skyscrapers to actually be a, a, a operating mm-hmm, society? Mm-hmm. Or is that just what we in the 21st century um, 
you know, make out to be advancements. Because you, you hear that argument a lot. I mean, at least I do of like people like, mm-hmm. oh, well, we have steel now. That's why, you know, throw back to the first tour. That's why aliens built stuff. That's why this happened. That's why that happened. Because they didn't have uh, computer systems to make this. And it's like, well, yeah, they had other things that worked. Yeah. They have other systems. It's it just because well, we have yeah. our own kind of like, you know, mm-hmm. basically technology, whatever you want to call it, that makes us feel like it's advanced because it feels like it should be. It doesn't mean that mm-hmm. it discredits like ancient technology as well. Yeah. yeah, I mean, you know, sure, ancient people might have thought you got sick because there were demons in your blood. Well, um, <laughs> yeah. But, I mean... you know, they they also figured out a lot of other stuff. You know, a lot's been made of like, because they didn't have the mathematics for modern engineering, that's why all of mm-hmm. their stuff is so overbuilt and why it True, lasted yeah. so long. Why you can have like a thousand year old road is because they were like, well, we don't know. <laughs> we don't know how to measure how tough the road is. So we're just going to make it as tough as we can. Yeah. Built you to know? last. Don't make them like they yeah. used to. <laughs> yeah those roads but it's true it's those a valid... pyramid we we really don't make pyramids like we used to we don't now they're just we in front don't. of bass pro shops <laughs> i do uh one day we'll pilgrimage to the bass pro shop here <laughs> oh yes 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 oh my god, god tiktoks are so good um... <laughs> oh my god uh yeah but... it's uh it, it's 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 a way that we have we ha- you know in one way it's impossible and you know it's part of our project here uh-huh. as we think about what are museums capable of and what are they not capable of and right. I I want to be an advocate for museums and I same think, yeah I and I think that's where both of us come from is a is a love of history and a mm-hmm. fascination with everything that's right and wrong with it. Yes. Um, you know and understanding vehicles potentially for the future where we can understand that it's not just hall of dinosaurs hall of cave people hall of uh you know uh people domesticating horses hall of people in sailing ships you know right you know, and understanding all of the the other things that happen in between, underneath, and above that at the same time. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think that's really, uh, one, the message here, and also just something to kind of, to think as well in it, because I don't think that I don't think that necessarily like institutions or academia is even bad. Sure, it has problems, and there's critiques that need to be like resolved, but I also think it it offers a place of knowledge and a place of understanding for those who wish mm-hmm. to research and push forward and kind of maybe propel us out of a time of like yeah. misinformation and fighting information with with just filler. I think if you want if it feels like you know, if it feels like overwhelming and insurmountable, you know, it's maybe not even, you know, I think if if you're thinking that right now, breathe. It's okay. Yeah. <laughs> Just accept the fact that it might not be done in our lifetimes. We can try our best. Yeah. But that's... We, we can try our best. And also remember that you're not the only one thinking those things. And that this all of these critiques and all of these projects that uh that are seeking to point out the issues with our academics 
those themselves come from academics. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's not. It's not just again some random person hailing on the internet making a revel like a revelation on how to change things. It's very much pre- present mm-hmm. in the world, and that means that things are shifting and and knowledge is changing. And clearly, there's ideas being challenged. And I think personally, for the best. I mean, like I kind of always will remember. It's like when we read. Um, Hal Foster's Bad New Days in, mm-hmm. in of course this is during quarantine so I'm already annoyed and uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm inconvenienced Jesus no but like uh, I remember like we had our lecture and we're, we're you know Zan and I and David are all you know gathered and we're talking we're getting ready to present to our professor to have like this group conversation about Bad New Days and this like critique in art and this new way of showing and I'm like I didn't understand any of this I was like, this dude makes no sense. Like, because I really like Claire Bishop, who's very clear in her writing and very, mm-hmm. I can just like understand it. And I think mm-hmm. that's a writing style problem. And I also just feel like some older academics just say a lot of stuff and it doesn't make any sense. But also we then have to understand that there is a huge history there to then mm-hmm. digest before approaching certain books. So it, it's like, there is a push and pull to that argument as well. And without going into like, you know, rambles and rants about different philosophers being outdated or art critiques being kind of irrelevant nowadays i think it's important to recognize context understand where it's applicable and if you really like history it's 100 percent worth digging into these things like for example in in explaining the the importance of the incan empire in this history that's not necessarily as well known as it should be it's humanizing to hear how they were so efficient but so flawed exactly that doesn't make them into this into an other into something that is even even if it's overly positive any overly positive uh description of a marginalized people i think then dehumanizes Mm -hmm. them in a way this is this is all a part of the story Uh, exactly show it show it all show you know show 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 the good parts of uh english history i guess monty python um (laughs) yeah show 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 the bad parts show uh show india yeah exactly and yeah i think that's really the important thing here is that human connection and that you know there's there's clearly good and bad but also at the end of the day everybody is they're all human so yeah regardless of i think cultural boundaries which are very distinct and different of course yes there is always going to be these kind of repeating things because we're human uh-huh. that's how it is uh-huh. Uh-huh. um yeah how profound yeah that's what they call me philosopher joe you know no geez no they don't call, no one calls <laughs> it's a real, it's a, philosopher joe is someone you can really get into you can really have a, uh, yeah. have a drink with philosopher joe i feel like yeah that that's probably valid or they're just like god he talks way t- I, I, I just <laughs> i'm always like i feel like um <laughs> Uh, what's that guy's name? Who's uh, it's the Eastern European man, Slovak. Shlo- I can't never. Uh, say his name. oh, oh, uh, yeah, it's Slovak. Uh, um, yeah, where he's he is like, I mean, some of his theories are also very interesting. Come, he, my he, favorite movie is Kung Fu Panda. Yeah, see, that's me because I've just turned, and I think this is why we get along so much, Zane, and act as our tour guides as we are, because we'll just critically analyze everything in life, and I, I feel like I forget that I do that now, like all of the time, because my brain doesn't turn off. So I'll just be like critically analyzing like literally kung fu panda and someone's like I, it's a movie like i don't know i don't know what you're trying to do here man this, it's not that deep so i mean i i guess it, maybe if there isn't an urban dictionary definition of philosopher joe yet it's like 
it's like your average Joe, but they critically analyze way too much mm. stuff. Maybe that's a good thing. Maybe it's a bad thing. I don't know. But <laughs> this has been very interesting. What a great in conversation, history lesson. So much here to digest. Definitely need to take a minute to kind of take it all in for sure. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. And uh, don't plot to kill your son. Yeah, not great. Uh, I guess it's interesting to know that like family drama existed even there. So Charles Charles C. Mann uses the phrase Shakespearean. Yeah, it is very Shakespearean to Which, be honest. On the, on the one hand, I think on the one hand you could say that's a little Eurocentric. On the I mean, yeah. other hand, insanely accurate. Yeah. Hey, who did it first? It's 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 Hamlet in South America, you know? Yeah. Or you know what? Hamlet is the Incan Empire in Denmark. Oh, whoa, meta. Yes, <laughs> sort of. No, uh, it's not. <laughs> it's really not. Meta Mesoamerican. They're not Mesoamericans. No. Uh, they're South Americans. Anyways, yeah. we hope you've had a great time here at the Uncanny County Museum. We sure did. Isn't mm-hmm. that right, Philosopher Joe? Oh, absolutely. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Uh, wait, there were, there were, what, what philosophers were named Joseph? Um, I'm blanking on all philosophers I've ever heard of. Uh, uh, Joseph, uh, Stalin. Yeah, you know, I was thinking the same thing, and I was like, that's not a good look. Joseph and also- Campbell. Joseph Gordon-Levitt. Uh, I guess he's a sort of Twitter philosopher. I guess so, yeah. Um, anyways, this has been a great mm-hmm. time joe uh you got anything to plug besides your upcoming philosophy book yeah stay tuned for like 30 years in the future when maybe that'll happen if i ever change career paths <laughs> arts of philosophy it's arts of visual philosophy as i say so we're already on the right track mm. um mm. no not too much i you know always the midnight drive located on radio org. um i'll have news i'm sure regarding any shows or future endeavors that show up working on some new projects you know getting into that out of graduate school uh rhythm i have a work in the uh, in a future upcoming exhibition at the cica museum in south korea if you're in south korea i guess go that would be cool. I don't know if I'll be there, but that's because it's in <laughs> November and I don't plan my life out that far. Joe anymore. can't be bothered to show up to his own opening. Yes, we know it's on the other side. Of the what world. a mood, though. I feel like that's a, like, <laughs> it's not because of it's not because of the a possibility of travel restrictions or pandemics and whatnot. It's because I have to make a look. So I feel like I can embrace this. Yeah, I mean, uh, th- this is uh, this is payoff for those that listen to these in order. But um, I f- did buy a pair of bootcut jeans, so this nice. is the summer of cowboy for me. Ah, so it's cowboy summer. Yes, high waisted cowboy uh, or bootcut jeans. Uh, I'm I'm excited. I'm ready to wear nice. cowboy boots uh, to uh, you know uh, in Boston and Montana and beyond. Right, I mean, we are cowboy cosplayers. This is canon. Yes, so. but okay, okay, okay. But, 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 but. Um, so, say we show up to your opening in South mm. Korea. We're dressing like cowboys, right? Well, of course, yeah. We kind of have to now. We committed to the bit. Hell yeah. <laughs> That's always the mood. Yes, yes. Yeah, uh, let's see. Um, I Besides uh, besides bootcut jeans, what do I have <laughs> going on in my life? Um, oh, right. Uh, yes, July 10th at the Limner Gallery. I will be there for the reception of the group show I'm in called Arte Natura. 
which is very, very exciting. Uh, that's in Hudson, New York. Uh, if you are in, uh, in and around uh, Massachusetts or upstate New York area, uh, I will be there. And I don't have exact dates for it yet, but in September of this year, I've also been uh, accepted to a show called Critters at the Mize Gallery in St. Petersburg, Florida. Uh, you know, my, uh, my home base through all of this um when i'm not in boston or at the uncanny county museum um located in the uncanny valley yeah i do not have a piece yet i've been assigned an animal that i need to make a painting of for that show yes very very exciting yes i don't know if i should keep that a secret maybe i should let's keep it a secret have fun with it yes okay yeah and uh yeah uh if you want to find me i'm at xanasaurus on instagram and I'm Joe Cimino Art on Instagram. If you want to find us on Twitter, we're at Uncanny Museum, at Uncanny County Museum on Instagram. Please reach out to us with uh-huh. any uh, info on the show, or if you want to correct our pronunciations on anything, add more information that we can add back later, or just yes. say hi. Uh, we love to hear from you. Um, yeah, and uh, check out Theodore Rex, available on home video <laughs> at <your laughs> Blockbuster. <laughs> what a plug thanks thanks somebody's got to plug that movie that's true we gotta get the ratings up from the uncanny county museum i have been zan peters and i've been joe Samino. bye-bye bye, bye.